listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, or continuing in the series that Melvin is preaching through in 1 John. And right now, we find ourselves in chapter 5. And I'm just going to begin by reading chapter 5, 1 through 5. That's our text this morning. We're going to probably do some uh, jumping around as we look at other texts that uh, will help us to understand this text. But right, uh, right now, we're going to read through God's Word. So open your Bibles with me. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. And His command. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, your word is powerful. Your word tells us that it is powerful, it is active, it works in a person's life, cutting, dividing, convicting, reproving. It exposes the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And God, we ask that you would do that work in us today. Father, do that work in your people. We, we live our lives and we live them out in the world. And, and, the, and we face temptations and we face trials. There are circumstances that, that threaten our faith, Father, that that would turn us back to the flesh, that would turn us away from faith in Jesus. God, we ask that your word would speak to us this morning in those places where we are weak, in those places where we are tempted. And Father, in those hidden places where we might be hiding sin, God, we pray that your your word would expose and convict And then, Father, we ask that you would set us free. Your word sets us free, Father. It it exposes and frees us from bondage to sin. And God, we pray that you would do that. And for those, Father, here who don't know you this morning, we pray that your spirit would take your words and breathe new life into dead souls. We ask these things all in Christ's name. Amen. So people are, I don't know if you've ever found this, but people are hard to love. Have you ever noticed it? 
Uh, if you haven't, you probably haven't met Melda. Oh, I, I didn't mean to say that. I, I meant to say me. You probably haven't met me. Now, sometimes the problem is with me. I'm too something, too, uh, too controlling, too demanding, too selfish. But often the problem is actually you. Uh, people. People do really dumb things, right? It's, the, it's, it's not always us. It's, it's other people. People do dumb things. And I'm not talking about, you know, the, the uh, YouTube bloopers, right? No, it's the road rage kinds of things, the hurtful, the mean kinds of things that I'm referring to here. But have you ever had a breakup with a friend, right? So one of our responses to people is that we gather friends around ourselves, people that we get along with, people that laugh at our jokes and, um, you know, who, yeah, like to hang out with us, or at least they tell us they like to hang out with us. Uh, we get outraged together at the, at the mean things that other people do to us. But have you ever had a breakup with a friend, like one of those breakups? Even people that we get along with are hard to like, right? It's not just the people out there, it's, it's even our friends. So what do we do? We, we start families, right? Blood is thicker than water. But sadly, the statistics show that even family ties don't keep us together. Right? Their families are breaking up all over the place. So, what about the church? The church is totally different. I mean, we've been changed, haven't we? We've been transformed. We believe the gospel. These are our brothers, our spiritual brothers and sisters. Right? This is true. And I, I hate this statement. I'm sure you've heard it before. And if I had a dollar for every time I heard it, but... The church would be great if it wasn't for the people. Well, this morning, the Apostle John has a few things to say to us about our relationships in the church that I hope and I pray will continue the work of transformation that God has begun in your life if you are a Christian. I need this word this morning. And I want to begin this morning at the beginning. That is, at the beginning of the Christian life. As we come to this text this morning, we see that the first idea that John presents is faith in Jesus. It's right there in that opening line. Everyone who believes. John is talking about faith. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ have been born of God. But Faith is not actually the first thing in a Christian's life. Faith actually comes after the new birth or what I'm going to call regeneration. And it's actually the fruit of regeneration. And I need you to think with me here and remember some things that you might have learned way back when. I'll walk through them with you, you know, slowly way back in elementary school, things about verbs and tenses. You'll notice here that John uses the present 
tense as in verse 1 when he says everyone who believes. John is describing a person who is currently believing. He's actively professing faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins right now in his life. But notice that what John, notice what John says about this person. He says that these people have been born from him. John is describing an action that's happened somewhere in the past in this person's life. He's saying that this rebirth has already happened. He's, he's actively believing right now, but there's a rebirth that happened somewhere in the past. In fact, this is the very reason and the only reason that a person is even able to believe. And the same idea is expressed by the Apostle Paul in numerous places. We'll, we can just look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul says here, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, which you once walked. You were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul is saying the exact same thing here as John is saying in the passage that we're looking at. Paul's argument is that dead men can't believe. Before you ever had a desire to love God or believe in Jesus, God had to resurrect you from the dead. And Paul describes this spiritual resurrection from the dead in Romans chapter 6. And I'm just going to read Romans 6, 3 and 4 here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, who've gone through baptism into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? That's what baptism represents, death to the old life. But there's a, there's a spiritual reality that that physical baptism, baptism is pointing to. And Paul says this in verse, or describes this in verse 4. What happens is that we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, new resurrection life. And Paul is saying here that the Christian is crucified with Christ in baptism and raised with Christ in his resurrection with the result that the Christian now presently lives totally and completely differently. And I'm not saying that there's not any struggle with sin, but the overarching trajectory of your life is different now if you're a believer. God has made the Christian alive. And Paul helps us understand what is going on inside in 1 Corinthians 2.14. I apologize for all these passages, but it's, this is really helpful for us to understand what God is doing when he saves a person, when he causes a person to be reborn. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. 
And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And Paul, Paul is not saying here that the unbeliever, the unspiritual man, is not, he's not able to understand the, the ideas that the Bible contains. He, he, these are the, the ideas that the Bible contains are, they're written with words, in sentences, and propositions. Anybody can understand the ideas themselves. You can be an atheist and understand the Bible. No, what Paul is saying is that the unspiritual man is not willing to accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. He doesn't want them. He has no desire, no taste for them. Do you see? God has to, st has to step in. God has to do something before anyone believes. God has to change our will and our desires before we ever have faith. Faith in Christ is the result of something that God has already done. He has caused you to be reborn. Let me illustrate this for you. We're witnessing this very thing right now in the Okanagan Valley. Melvin keeps posting on social media. Not that I would know anything about that, but my wife tells me about it. Um, he keeps posting and or gushing on about this in his sermons or at, at our prayer meetings. I'm really throwing you under the bus today, Melvin. About cherries. Like he loves cherries. Melvin is all about cherries in this season. And... I just want to ask you a question. How do we know what a cherry tree is, right? And you, maybe some of you are thinking, well, you just go out to the orchard and you start picking cherries. And before long, you'll soon figure out which trees are the cherry trees. And you'd be right. But, but I would say that, I would want to say that that cherry tree was a cherry tree long before it ever produced a single cherry. That cherry tree was a cherry tree when it was still in the pit. In fact, it was a cherry tree even before that. It was a cherry tree right from the moment that that DNA was formed to make that cherry tree. That became its identity. That was the time that the cherry treeness of that future cherry tree was established. And in the same way, our faith, what you see right now, what you are actively living out is simply evidence. It's fruit that shows that God has already done something in the past. Faith is the fruit of new birth. Now, often when Christians struggle in life, they tell themselves or they tell others that they, they need more faith. Right? This is something that, a trap that we can fall into. Have you ever heard that? Have, maybe you've said that. Well, there, there are, I want to be careful, I'm not calling, necessarily calling you wicked, but wicked people take this idea. They build entire ministries by distorting the scriptures and praying on the poor, telling them that very thing. They just need more faith. They, they pray on the poor. They pray on the sick. They pray on the broken. They, they tell them that if they send money to their ministries, God will see their faith and bless them material, materially. That is wicked. That is terrible. And they do this in the name of Christ. But even Christians, us, we can do this in less sinister but equally unbiblical and unhelpful ways. We can get caught up thinking that we need a greater 
quantity of faith that we need to believe more, that if we muster up more faith, God will hear our prayers. He'll move the mountains that we need moved, right? We just need more of it. We need to stir ourselves up. Or we think that maybe, it's, maybe the problem is the quality of our faith, right? That the reason that God doesn't answer our prayers or seem to hear us is that we're, we're not doing the things that we ought to do. We need to go back to practicing our devotions and prayers and living right. But in these verses, we find that it's neither the quality of our faith nor the quanti- quantity of our faith. It's the object of our faith that matters. It's who we are putting our faith in. I heard an engineer describe faith this way. He said, I can design a bridge that has arches and pillars and decks and lots of concrete that will look like it will hold people and cars traveling over it. But if my math is wrong, my math that determines how big those pillars need to be, how thick the girders need to be to support the deck, If that math is wrong, then no matter how confident I am that this bridge will carry the people and the cars, it it will fail. It doesn't matter how convinced I am. I can believe it. I can try and convince everyone. It doesn't matter. If the math is wrong, the bridge will fail. And in the same way, our, our, our faith is, is like that. It's not how much or how firmly I believe. It's in who my faith is in. And we cannot, we must not get this wrong. And look at your Bibles with me um, to verses 1 and 5. We're going to spend a little bit of time comparing these two verses. Uh, 1 John 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then the last verse says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that Jesus is the focal point of our faith. In both verses, we see that. It's not our faith, but faith in Jesus Christ that gives me confidence that I've been born of God. Not only must our faith be in Jesus... But there's a a real danger in getting this wrong. We can't be wrong about this. Back in in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, um, confess Jesus is not from God. If we get this wrong... Our our faith is in jeopardy. Jesus must be the focal point of our faith or we're not born of God. The second thing that we see in these two verses is that belief is very specific. And I want you to notice this. The belief that John is speaking about is that Jesus is the Christ. Not Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a short little word in between them. A verb in between them. You've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's a big deal. 
that little word that's in between Jesus and Christ. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Like, it, it might look like that, but it's not his last name. Christ is a title that means anointed, like Queen Elizabeth or Prime Minister Trudeau. In the Old Testament, priests and kings were anointed with oil for service to the people. And you can read about this in the book of 1 Samuel. Both Samuel or, or Saul and David were anointed by Samuel to lead God's people, to rule God's people. But, but when we get to the time of the New Testament, the house of David had, had failed. There was no longer a man of the house of David sitting on the throne. And God had promised to David, that he would raise up a son of the line of David who would one day rule on David's throne. And the people of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth understood this title Christ to refer to all of that. When you said Jesus Christ, you meant that. He was the son of David. The expected son who God would raise up to deliver his people from the oppression of their enemies. That's what, they, that's what they believed. That's what they understood by this. And all of their hope was wrapped up in this title that John tells us is the key. And don't miss this. This title is the key to spiritual rebirth. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ to be born again, to have spiritual rebirth. So why does all this matter? Yeah, it's in the text, but what, what's, what's the important, importance here? Let, let, let's take another look at 1 and 5. We, we looked at verse 1 here, pretty, or the first part of verse 1 pretty closely. But did you notice that there's another difference between them? One says, everyone who, like verse 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 5 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. They're different, aren't they? The details are important here. John is saying that we must believe two things. First, that Jesus is the one the Old Testament promised would come. He is the Christ, the son of David, the king of Israel. God's anointed one who would deliver their people from their oppressors. We must believe that. And second, we must believe that Jesus is the son of God. God himself come down from heaven to do what man could not do. Pay our penalty for sin. Pay man's penalty for sin by suffering and dying in his place. Belief in Jesus cannot be in name only. Do, do you understand what I mean? You cannot say, I believe in Jesus and be regenerated. That, that's not an option here. You must believe in the God-man who came down from heaven to rescue sinners and that belief must include submission to and loyalty to the God King who conquered sin and death and reigns right now at God's right hand as the King of the heavens and the earth. Belief, any lesser belief than that is not the belief that the Bible is talking about when it says 
You must put your trust, you must, must put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You have to, you have to hold all of that. Now, you might, you might forget, you know, like you might not be able to remember all those things that I just said. But you must submit to that. You must, you must believe that Jesus is those things and submit to it. And there's a particular kind of trap for people who think they are Christians. There is a danger that you might think that you've put your trust in Jesus only to find out on the day of judgment that you are wrong. And the reason that you would be misled about this is because sin is deceptive. And we see this in Romans 7 verse 11. I'll just read it to you. The Apostle Paul writes, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin blinds people. It makes them think that they believe in Jesus when in reality all they do is talk like a Christian or hang around Christians or pray before meals or go to church or tithe. They do all, all these things that Christians do, but they haven't been transformed. They haven't been changed. They haven't been regenerated. They haven't been given new hearts. They are Christians in name only. And Jesus warns people like this. That on the day of judgment, he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And I just want to say, and all of us need to examine our hearts and find and determine, are we here? Is, does this describe us? Am I a name only Christian? Am I a cultural Christian? Do I come here because I was raised in the church? Or do I really believe these things about Jesus. Have I put my whole being, my whole faith, my whole life, does it hang on whether Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? That, only that is true belief. You must look to the cross where the God-man, Jesus, bore his Father's wrath in your place for your sin, and you must bow your knee to the king of the universe and pledge your loyalty and submission to him. Now, before we move on, let's, I just want to review what we've seen so far. John gives us two principles in verse 1. We've, we've only looked at the first one in detail, and we've seen that the, it's the new birth that makes faith possible. And that Jesus must be the object of our faith. The second principle that we see in the second part of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. It seems disconnected. At least I find that it seems disconnected. But if you, if you turn back to the last two verses of chapter 4. You will notice that John is simply returning to an idea that he's already stated in these previous verses. Back in uh, verse 21, he, verse 21 ends this way, and this is the commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And, and uh, you know, as I was writing this sermon, it, it was brutal. I, there's five sermons in this 
This is always how it is, isn't it, Melvin? Like there, there's just, there's so much to say uh, about uh, what, the, what the writers have, have written. There's like it's inexhaustible. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is that John is moving from talking about one characteristic, and, and I use that word characteristic deliberately. This is one characteristic of the Christian life, faith. He's moving from faith to the next thing, right? This is the next characteristic of the Christian life is love. You can't be a Christian and not have faith in Jesus. I think we established that pretty clearly. But John is now going to move to the next characteristic and say, you cannot be a Christian if you don't love. And the... And in these two verses, we really arrive at the, at the pinnacle, at the high point of this text and the heart of the apostle for the readers whom he calls his children. John only gives two commandments in this whole letter, just two. It's, it sometimes sounds like he's always giving us commandments, but he only actually gives us two. And we see them, we see both of them in, in chapter 3, verse 23, when John says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we love one another just as he commands us. And this commandment, John repeats this second commandment in chapter 4, 21, when he writes, and this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, this statement functions like a test for us as Christians. And I think it probably created some fearful questions in the minds of these readers. I, I, and I think John is, the Apostle John is anticipating questions like, how do, I, how do I know if I love my brother? He's commanded me, right? He says that I cannot love God and hate my brother. So how do I really know if I love my brother? And notice, I want you to notice the Apostle's heart here. It's maybe not immediately apparent, but the the little phrase that we say by, or that we read, by this we know. In those words, we are getting a, a window into the heart of the apostle. John is very concerned about the confidence of his audience. He wants them to know, really know That they love their brothers. He's not just throwing this out there. You know like. Okay I'm just going to throw this out there. You're on your own to deal with. No. John tells them. You've got to love your brother. But he wants them to know. Whether or not. Whether or not they pass this test. And that's his heart. He he isn't going to give his readers. um, John's not after head knowledge here. He doesn't want us to know more things. Right? He isn't going to give his readers more information. John is writing to give his readers assurance so that they will know without a shadow of a doubt that they are God's children or whether they are God's children because they believe or they love the children of God. He wants for them to pass the test. This is his heart. Now, the Bible's a, a big book. It's a really big book. If you've read it, you'll know that it's a big book. One of the biggest books that you'll probably ever read. And knowing the Bible was really important to some of the Bible greats like Jesus and Paul. 
And I, and I, would, I, I believe there's good evidence to believe that both Jesus and Paul and probably many others had the entire Bible. That would have just been the Old Testament for them, just the Old Testament. But they probably had the entire Bible memorized. Paul, but in all likelihood, it was, you know, the scriptures were just, you, you see this in Jesus's life. The scriptures are on his lips when he's in, when he's facing temptation or when the Pharisees are, are attacking him. But knowing God's word is not the only way that we can know God. God also reveals himself as his spirit testifies. We read this in Romans 8. As his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And this is precisely what John wants to show these Christians in these verses. And follow, follow John's logic here. John gives us two tests, right? He's, he's set up this, this um, requirement that you've, got to, that you've got to love your brothers. If you love God, you've got to love your brothers. And he gives us two ways that we can test this. The first one is, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. But this is a very subjective test. How do, you, how do you test whether you love God? How do you really know? How do you run a test? But, but in the next part of the verse, John gives us specific ways that we can test and prove that we love God. We obey, we do, we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. The Puritans called this experimental religion. Faith that can be tested and proved. It's much the same as what James is getting at in James chapter 2 when he says, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by what I do. And I, and I, I think we should think of it like an actual experiment. Kids, what, um, if you wanted to prove that tadpoles turned into frogs, what would you do? You'd go down to the creek, right? Take your mom's bucket or something that your mom probably wouldn't want you to put tadpoles in and you'd fill it up. You'd take your net down there and you'd scoop out all the tadpoles that you could find out of that creek, stick them in the bucket, bring it back, and you'd put them in the kiddie pool. And you'd watch them every day and maybe some of you keeners would take notes. And if you saw that those, frog, that those tadpoles turned into frogs after some time, that would prove that your experiment was right, right? you would know that frogs came from tadpoles. But let me ask you this. What would you do if you wanted to prove that the sky was blue? What kind of experiment would you run? If you... Okay. What about if you wanted to prove that your mom loved you? How would you do that? Oh, yeah. It's a little harder to do some of these, some kinds of experiments than others. It's, it's much like what John has said here. How do we, how do we know that we love God? It's, it's a hard test to assess. It's a hard test to perform. It's a hard test to answer. But how do we, how do we prove whether we keep his commandments? That's a little more black and white. And that's what John did. He gave them a test that they could easily measure. Do they obey God's commands or not? 
Obedience to God's commands reveals whether we love God or not. That's John's point. But how does this not become legalistic? How does this experimental religion not end up becoming salvation by works? And the answer, once again, is found in the Christian doctrine of regeneration. You're seeing a theme run through, through this here. Regeneration solves this problem for us. Christians have been born again, and not only does the new birth bring about faith in Jesus, but this new birth changes a, a believer's relationships or relationship to the commandments, to the very commandments. It transforms that relationship as well. Obeying God becomes a joy for a believer. In verses 3 to 5, John explains the unique relationship between the believer and God's commandments and specifically why they are able to keep them. And the first thing that we read here, now I said earlier that they become a joy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill that out a, a bit because there's some tensions there. I don't always feel like the commandments are a joy. So we're not going to just leave you hanging there. But the first thing that John says about the Christian's relationship to God's commandments in verse 3 is that they are not burdensome. Okay, now burdensome means weighty and difficult. And this is not the way that we normally view God's commandments, right? I, I, unless there's somebody that's different than me out there. We normally view God's commandments as weighty and difficult. And when I was a kid, I found it much easier, like just to prove this, I found it much easier to disobey my mom and take the cookie from the cookie jar than it was to obey my mom and leave the cookies alone, right? Those, my mom's commands, her rules, they were harder to keep than not keeping them. It was much easier to not keep mom and mom's rules. And I'll confess that even as a Christian, I find it difficult to obey God's commandments. So what gives? What does John mean when he says that God's commandments are not burdensome? And to understand what John meant, we've got we've to turn to something else that Jesus said. Uh, and there's, some, there's various places that we could go, but one of the places that I'm going to take you this morning is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus uh, says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The rest that Jesus describes here is rest from striving to earn our standing before God or before men, like just, the, just doing the things that we feel obligated to do, that our conscience convicts us of. And it's, it's not that the yoke disappears, right? God doesn't solve this problem by taking the yoke away, 
but the yoke changes. The, the yoke itself is no longer wearisome. And j- just so, be, so we're clear, I, I mean, I think this is pretty obvious, but maybe for you kids, a yoke, not like an egg yoke, not one of those little yellow things. A yoke is a thing that farmers would put on the necks of oxen, and then they would attach them to some kind of implement, a wagon or a plow, in order for the oxen to perform some kind of work. And Jesus is talking about that kind of yoke, the yoke that you would use in order to do work. But how is it even possible for a yoke to not be a burden? Like it was built for bearing burdens. How can, how can it not be a burden? I mean, it's around your neck, right? Isn't that the definition of a burden? My kids would hang off my neck when I was, when I was a little younger and, and they felt like a burden, Right? They, they thought I was a jungle gym and, and every, they'd be hanging there and yeah, it was, it was a burden. But the answer here once again is regeneration. Christians are born of God and when this happens, it gives them a new nature, a nature that delights in God, a nature that delights to do his will. It changes their nature. It changes the very desires that are, that are in them. Yes, there is a war going on, the war of the flesh and the spirit, but we now have a new nature that wants to please, <coughs> to please God. And we will continue to strive, yes, but that striving has changed. We no longer are striving to achieve, no longer striving to to appease a guilty conscience. We're striving instead to please God. The burden has been replaced by a joy that lightens the load. It's like going on a really long hiking trip, but someone else is carrying your backpack. You still have to climb the mountains, but the burden is gone. And it's important to consider who took the burden. Before Jesus told his disciples to come to him and that and he would give them rest, in the previous verse, in, in verse 27, he says, All things have been handed to me by my Father. And this handing over to Jesus refers to the cross where he's going to bear the sins of his people. So that they would not have to. You see, Jesus was crushed under the weight. We're talking about burdens here. Jesus was crushed under the weight of your sin. He took your heavy burden so that you would not have to bear it. Jesus was crushed under the weight of your sins. And remember... That he compares what he calls you to. So Jesus, has a, when he calls his disciples to follow him, he says to them, take up your cross and follow me. Following Jesus, there's, there's a, this weird uh, tension that's going on here. Following Jesus is going to cost you everything. But the reward is so great that the cost is insignificant to you. The Christian life is not easy, but when you understand that Jesus has already borne your burden of sin, compared to that, everything else is light. 
there is, there is so much that I'm leaving out, but, but we need to wrap things up. And, and I want to conclude this morning by reflecting on John's, what I think is John's main point in this message. And try, I want to tie all these loose ends or some of these loose ends together. John's main point in this passage is that Christians love the children of God. John has given us that as a principle and he's given us a test this morning and we saw the principle in verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And then we get two tests, right? The first test was everyone, um, if we love, uh, let me just find it here. The first test was uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And the second test is, and we obey his commandments. And we learn that the new birth fuels and powers both our faith and our obedience. Right? It's the new birth that does both of those things. But if we ended the sermon here, we, we would have missed the main point of the, of the passage. John is calling us to obey God's commands, commands that we're no longer a burden but a delight. And our obedience is, that, is so that we would be thoroughly transformed. And John says that with complete certainty... That transformation, that spiritual rebirth will transform us so that we will overcome the world. And all of this should sound magnificent and inspiring. But what does it mean for us today? When we get up from these chairs, when we walk out of, the, of this movie theater. And it's easy to think that the battle lies out there. Out, you know, beyond the doors. When we step out into the world. But let's bring this all together. Jesus says... I'm going to take us to another passage. Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment. He's talking about commandments. In fact, it's the same commandment in John 13, 34, and 35 as John is talking about again here in 1 John. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So also you ought to love one another. By this, by your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And John has given us two commandments in his epistle. Believe in him as the son of God. And love your brother. And I want to say this morning that that is where our battle lies. At that place. How are you going to overcome the world? It's certain but how are you going to do it? And it's only going to happen as you lay your life down for your brothers and sisters. As you die to your selfish ambitions and serve the Lord by serving your brothers and sisters. How are we going to reach our neighbors and our cities and the world? And Jesus tells us right here that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And this is, this is the center of the passage that we're looking at this morning. You want to know that you love, your, how do you know that you love your brothers and sisters when you love God and keep his commandments? And his commandment is, his commandment is that you should love 
and lay your, your lives down for one another. This is, we, we often come to church and, you know, we have loose connections. We have loose commitments, right? We, we show up because we know it's a good thing to do, but, but we often come partly out of obligation, partly out of, out of conviction and conscience, but, but we ought to come here because this is our family. This is the way that we're going to do war against the world. This is the way being here together, loving one another, is the way that the world is going to know about Jesus. Your relationships here are going to do that. And people are not easy to love. I'm not easy to love. You're not easy to love. It's far easier to surround yourself with people who affirm you, who are kind to you, who encourage you, and walk away from difficult people or difficult circumstances. But obedience, at the very least, means that you are committed to your local church and the people. To say the local church is to mean the people of God. And it's going to be hard because you will be there. But you can be confident of this, that the Holy Spirit is at work transforming you and your brothers and sisters. And I want to say to you that the, the Christian life is, and Jesus said this, the Christian life can be summed up in one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus adds the second one to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I, and I just want to say to you this morning, if you want to fulfill that first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if that is the chief end of your life, then the way that you're going to do that is by loving your brothers and sisters, by laying your life down for them just as your Savior laid his life down for you. Let's pray. Uh, Father uh, in heaven, we thank you that uh, your word is uh, life uh, to our souls. And it is uh, food. Father, your son Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And how do we find out what your will is? by reading your word. Father, we pray that your spirit would take these truths and apply them to our hearts. Help us not to be people who love uh, Jesus in name only. Father, help us to be people who love our brothers and sisters by bearing their burdens, by digging into their lives, by, by living transparent lives with one another. God, help us to get beyond ourselves and, and, and to serve the way that you have served us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.